Welcome to Aspen Insight from the Aspen Institute. I'm Zach St. Louis. And I'm Marcy Krivenin. On Insight, Marcy and I dig into the problems our colleagues and the broader Institute family are working to solve. Challenges around poverty, politics, division, and more. Today, eradicating intolerance. We hear from two global changemakers. First, Iranian-born Merdad Bagai. He was an outcast as a child because of his religion. Now his mission is to wipe out hate, racism, and bigotry. It's a particularly difficult fight in today's world. I think a lot of people accept hate as the new normal. You know, it's like we accept it as an endemic condition. It's just, it is the way people are. And actually, the thing about it that bothered me is that it's not the way people are. Merdad started High Resolves. It's an educational program that teaches high school students how to be purposeful leaders and reject hate. The program is in 500 schools in Australia, and it's expanding to the U.S., Canada, Brazil, China, and India. This month, Merdad won the John P. McNulty Prize for his work. It's a $100,000 award that recognizes global changemakers. The John P. and Anne Welsh McNulty Foundation is a partner of the Aspen Institute. I caught up with Merdad, who's also a Henry Crown Fellow at the Institute earlier this month. He was in New York City to receive his award. Thanks for joining me. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. It looks like you grew up in Iran as a, a member of a group that was vilified and hated. What was that experience like, and how did it inspire the work you're doing today? So um, I grew up as a Baha'i, and the Baha'is are a religious minority in Iran. Um, it's an incredibly diverse community worldwide, but in Iran it was hated and vilified, primarily for some of the beliefs I think around the equality of women and men, the importance of science uh, on par with faith, the uh, you know educating girls, uh, and so on. And and I think as a result, um, it was just a confusing environment. Baha'is were considered by some to be untouchable and unclean, and um, so very much uh, I think like the history of race in America, it was a segregated group. The difference I think was that I didn't look any different from other people on the street. So, you know, if you're just walking on the street, you're indistinguishable. And yet there was this uh, vilification on the basis of beliefs. And so as a child, it was just confusing because, you know, you are interacting with folks and everyone's really, you know, nice, lovely. Iranians are known to be incredibly hospitable and generous people. And yet, on the other hand, there was this taboo uh, and, uh, around, uh, and around this. And so as a child, it was just something that was difficult to process and difficult to understand. Uh, and it became something that, you know, was a question that um, I thought about the rest of my life uh, and tried to come to terms with is what is it that gets, you know, really uh, wonderful people, smart people, well-meaning people uh, to be induced uh, to hate the other. Sure. And it was sort of those early experiences, personal experiences that um, made you ask those questions, it sounds like. Yeah, Absolutely. So many, many years later, you began this organization, High Resolves. Tell me about it. What is High Resolves, and when did it start? So really, High Resolves started uh, in 2005 as, a, as an organization, uh, as an idea. Uh, and it grew out of uh, being a Henry Crown Fellow. Uh, so I was part of the eighth class of Henry Crown Fellows. And as you know, we, we all commit to undertake some venture uh, that is around creating some kind of lasting good in society. Uh, and I decided that if we were going to spend a massive amount of time on something for a decade or more, 
it was going to be something to do as a family. And so my wife, Roya, and I began a long consultation around where we wanted to uh, direct our energies. We really thought, well, what if we could inoculate against hate, racism, bigotry? And what if we could get young people uh, as part of their normal education processes inside schools and, uh, and outside, uh, develop the skills of citizenship uh, so that they could be more constructive members of society? And so really, we started with an experiment in one school, our son's school in Sydney, Australia. Uh, it was a very successful experiment that then caught the attention of five other principals, and then there were 10 other schools, and then there were 20, and you know we were funding all this ourselves for the first few years, uh, and it began to grow. And we were convinced that actually it, it had the potential to become something bigger and that we needed to think about the way to scale it. You know, why did you decide to focus on hate or eradicating hate? What was it about um, that particular issue that, that drew you in? I think a lot of people accept hate as the new normal. You know, it's like we accept it as an endemic condition that is acceptable. You know, it's, it's, it's okay. It's, it's just, it is the way people are. And actually, the thing about it that bothered me is that it's not the way people are. You actually aren't born hateful. You're not born a racist. You're not born uh, thinking that uh, someone with a slightly different skin color or a different set of beliefs or uh, different preferences uh, is it inferior to you or, um, or you know, um, a scar on society or something like that. You learn that. And if you can learn it, then you can unlearn it. And so for us it was, well, let's actually really understand what happens with learning science. Let's really understand... Uh, how, as the normal part of education, you can help to uh, young people to rewire their brains so that they actually have viable defense systems against divisive messaging, hate, all that stuff that, that permeates through cultural experiences. They're all learned, um, be, learned knowledge. Uh, and so that's, that's really, we, we, got, we got very excited about that challenge. And uh, I think I had done a lot of work in, in grad school around um, creating simulations, and I'd sort of woken up to the power of experiential learning as a way of making this happen. And so really High Resolve started as an experiment uh, to see whether or not this kind of approach would be effective. And I think we, you know, we worked really hard to iterate our simulations, our curriculum, live. We had a lot of feedback from students and teachers. You know, some people say, well, how, you know, how have you arrived at this curriculum 13 years later? Well, through massive amounts of trial and error, experimentation, the study of uh, behavior science and learning science, and then we've really engaged in, in what Broer Saxberg calls uh, learning engineering to try to create the kinds of experiences that are going to be more effective in the kind uh, of skill development and change in mental schema that we try to do. Well, and it's interesting you said that, you know, hate is learned and perhaps from the culture that somebody grows up in. I can imagine that that would be a hard thing to battle in the classroom. You know, I, what sorts of tactics can you take to sort of fight against a learned behavior that, that kids are, are taking on outside of the classroom? So you, you know that moment when someone looks in the mirror and they just adjust their hair or something like that? There's a moment where there is, you're holding yourself and you're seeing the truth. You know? And what we try to do is get people to look in the mirror that way. And so, but the way we do it is put, put them through simulations where they have to make some kind of moral choice. 
and then let them look in the mirror and say, I made that choice and reflect on it. So as an example, we have a, a game that we, one of our simulations uh, is called Find Your People. Uh, and in that simulation, uh, the young people, it's about 60 of them enter the gym. They're each wearing a photo of someone from around the world around their neck. And what we do is we tell them a simple instruction, which is find your people. Now, inevitably, without talking to each other, right? So inevitably what happens is most of the time, students will group by race and ethnicity. And so, and then we, we, we then go on to do other things where they explore other aspects of character and interests, and they begin to see that uh, actually identity has, is multidimensional. You know, they, they get into the intersectionality uh, stuff. But for us, what's interesting is to get students to ask themselves, why did I choose to group by race? What is it about my upbringing that has conditioned me to think that my primary affiliation from an identity point of view is race? Why should that define who I am as opposed to the kind of character I have or the f interests I have in music or sport or food, uh, whether I'm an introvert or extrovert? You know? And so part of what happens as part of this journey of discovery is young people begin to realize uh, that that is actually a false premise, and they begin to question it in themselves. So the whole point of these um, exercises that we do is not to, you know, we're not programming people. What we're trying to do is expose them to, you know, to choices that are intrinsic in the way they think. And then if they look in the mirror, they have a chance to reflect, and they can answer for themselves. Is that what I want, or do I want to have something else? And that unlearning of some of the cultural layers that they've accumulated over the years is part of the work that they engage in over two to three years or four years. Uh, and on the other end, they come out with uh, a different set of beliefs than what they went in. You know, have you seen this play out? Can you give an example of maybe a, a child that you've worked with whose perspective was changed by the program? You know, one of the amazing things we do at the end of every program, it's one of my favorite things, is we do these things called I Resolve Two Cards. And they're the size of a business card, and every student at the end of every session writes a note to themselves in terms of what they, they've taken away. And one of the most interesting things for us is to read those things. Now, they're not there to be published or anything like that. Sometimes students decide they want to put them on Facebook, but we tell students that mm -hmm. it's really a note for themselves. And one of the cards I saw a couple of uh, months ago was, you know, really, really powerful. It was a note uh, about the student uh, to, him, to himself or herself, I'm not sure which. Uh, uh, and it was about um, confronting the racism that uh, he or she was experiencing at home. So what, it, so what it sort of showed me, and, it, you know, this is just one example, is that students go through this experience and uh, they understand the dissonance in their lives. They understand that whether it's the messaging in the media or what they have at home or in their religious institution, that there is something that is not quite uh, in sync with what they want to be or what they think is right. And then they start to pull on that thread and they start to investigate it. And so, yeah, you, do, you get stories like that all the time. Uh, and, and by the way, I mean, it's not limited to students. Sometimes parents, sometimes even our own staff uh, have epiphanies around things that uh, in their own childhood um, were, uh, you know, were in their own families were um, things that they need to unlearn. Sure. I, you know, it would, I was going to ask this, it sounds like a nice thing to apply uh, to adults as well, or, you know, something adults could, could practice as well. Absolutely, without a doubt. I mean, one of the things we're experimenting with, we have a university in Australia 
called UTS, University of Technology Sydney. Uh, we are uh, in the midst of a pilot with some university students, and we're working with them to figure out to, you know, in what ways could we take our program and ensure that university students don't graduate with, an, you know, with a bachelor's degree without understanding some degree of their role in society, having a much better basis of social justice uh, and, um, and even the kind of leadership training that they need in order to you know, be a forceful moral good in society. And UTS has a particularly strong uh, mission on social justice, so we're a very good fit. We'll, we'll see how that goes, and it might be something we roll out to tens of thousands of students. Uh, we also do corporate training. You know, we have um, organizations. We're in New York today. Last year, we did some training for a tech startup here called Grow Intelligence, which is another uh, venture of an Aspen fellow, Sarah Menker. Uh, and uh, Sarah invited us into uh, her um, company to try to create uh, more of a collective identity between the sales team and the engineering team. And we used all the high resolves games over the course of an entire afternoon to do that. And of course, what we do is all the revenue we get from corporate training, we use to subsidize the program into public schools that could otherwise not afford the program. Uh, so I think absolutely, uh, totally applicable. The other interesting thing, by the way, I should mention, you know, we think of ourselves as a multi-local organization. We really adapt our curriculum in different parts of the world. One of the things we've noticed is in China, when we do our work uh, with our partner, X school uh, that it actually is more effective to train the parents first uh, and then the children. So, you know, this question of the, the work we do applying to parents is definitely real, and it works. I think the thing that we believe in is that there is this unique window between the age of 10 and 17 where you really have the brain at its most pliable. Uh, and the executive function hasn't fully formed, uh, and so you have a chance in a much easier way to reset uh, some of the things and to unlearn them. It be, it's still possible as an adult. It's just a little bit more difficult. Um, you know, I have to hit a little bit on sort of the current atmosphere in the United States and across the world. You know, in America recently, we've seen hate and prejudice come out of the shadows with white supremacy and white nationalism. You know, when there's an atmosphere of division and hate in a society, is it harder to do this kind of work? Well, it's harder and it's, um, and it's easier at the same time in the sense that, you know, I think a lot of people, um, you know, uh, are, are, are very much tuned in to um, the state of society and they're uncomfortable with it. And really, people from all sides, I don't think it's limited to the right or the left, I think a lot of people are unhappy with the state of society. And, you know, part of what we do as High Resolves is we don't preach a particular point of view. We don't belong to a political party. We're not affiliated to the right or the left. Uh, we don't even preach particular answers or policy positions. What we do is we try to create a faculty for independent thinking, and we try to get young people to decide for themselves what it is uh, that they believe. Now, I think that a lot of times when uh, you're in an atmosphere of hate, People want to have something different. And so it raises this whole inquiry for young people of what do they think a just society is? Uh, and, you know, what's their vision for a just society? And they have to ask themselves a just society that, you know, isn't consistent with, say, life in 1950, but a just society that's consistent with a world uh, uh, that is, has a growing population, ever-increasing challenges in terms of our ability to sustain ourselves on the planet. And they have to say, you know, and, and a growing um, demographic change. 
and saying, oh, what kind of a society is going to work with the reality of what the world's going to look like in the next 10 years, 20 years, 30 years? And I think if you engage in that kind of work, there are certain principles that jump out. Uh, and, um, and then certain other policies that become less tenable or less um, believable. Uh, but I think for us, the idea is, you know, the work of citizenship is not um, an evangelical work of preaching a particular kind of policy. It's a capacity-building project to get people to be able to effectively engage in political, cultural, social discourse and decide for themselves what the right path is. You know, and with the work that you're doing, you're impacting a critical mass of the population to reject hateful discourse. You know, how do you see the future? How does the future look when this model has taken root with young people all over the world? So I do believe the, you know, in the saying, um, uh, you know, I think it was Dr. King who said the arc of history bends towards justice. And I think that is true. I just woke up to an email this morning. One of our staff members uh, comes from the rural South. And in her hometown, uh, there had been some serious acts of racism and discrimination. And it had been going on for, for the last, um, I don't know, 20 years, but it sort of really came to a head in the last six months. Uh, and what had happened overnight uh, is there was a change. Uh, the person in the administration who had been perpetuating uh, some of these practices uh, was forced to resign. Uh, they have appointed uh, a whole uh, new set of people to look at institutionalized uh, discrimination in their town. And what's most uh, powerful, uh, that um, the, the local uh, school has asked whether or not high results could engage. Now, this was really powerful to me because for this staff member of ours, uh, this had been a deeply personal issue. And for her to see that it's possible for things to change in her world uh, and that, you know, it, it may take time, but these things will tend towards the right side. I think for us, it's just, do we build the resilience and the grit to withstand the hard work that's required to move society uh, to, to towards a better future? Hmm. And then lastly, Merdad, um you know, you said the Henry Crown Fellowship inspired this project in the first place. Um, are you continuing to uh, be affiliated with the fellowship? How is it supporting your continued work? So I think it's difficult for people who are not part of the Henry Crown Fellowship to understand exactly what uh, role it plays in your life. Uh, so uh, on the one hand, uh, I have one of my life's most important mentors in Keith Berwick, uh, who really um, changed the trajectory of my life with the phone call in 2005 to take me into uh, that class. On the other hand, you've got uh, almost 20 of your life's most closest, most trusted friends, um, and uh, they are a deep part of your life. We we've, we've, have been through all the ups and downs in each other's lives, uh, whether it's uh, health issues, one of our classmates passed away, um, uh, uh, a number of years ago, uh, and uh, you know it was a painful thing for all of us. Uh, other classmates have gone through major life changes, relocations, divorce, remarriage, uh, job changes, uh, and through it all, uh, for the most part, this is a core of people that have a deep trust in each other and reliance in each other. We know that there is a safety net. There's this circle of trust. Uh, and you know what? This kind of work, this kind of life is a very lonely place if you don't have that kind of support network. 
So I think I consider myself extremely fortunate to have been part of the Henry Crown Fellowship. It continues to be an incredibly important part of my life. Very good. Well, congratulations on the McNulty Prize, and it was great speaking with you. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Merdad Bagai created High Resolves with his wife, Roya. He's a Henry Crown Fellow at the Aspen Institute. He's also a financial executive and author. Zach, did you know Aspen Insight has a sibling? Hmm, what do you mean? Insight's sister podcast is Aspen Ideas To Go. Cheesy, I know. It's a weekly show that takes talks from the Aspen Institute stages and packages them for your listening enjoyment. Oh, right, yeah. I've listened to Aspen Ideas To Go, and I've learned so much about science, politics, happiness, activism, and tons more. Just like Zach, you can become a regular listener. Guests on the show have included Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Michelle Obama, David Brooks, and Katie Couric. Find Aspen Ideas To Go in your favorite podcast player. Okay, now let's get back to the rest of today's show. Merdad Bagai, who you heard from earlier, isn't the only global changemaker tackling hate. Hope Azeda is using art as a tool for social transformation in Rwanda. In 1994, one million people were killed in 100 days in Rwanda during a horrific genocide. Azeda's family fled to Uganda to escape rising ethnic tensions. When she returned following the genocide, the situation was difficult to comprehend. Going back to Rwanda, I found that all my relatives... Really, none of them survived except a cousin of mine. My father's property had been burnt. Genocide is quite different from war. It's a, it's a well-scripted evil. It's, it's always hard to just describe the atrocities of this kind of evil. To heal herself and her country, she became a leader in reconciliation efforts. Amidst all this, you try to strike a life and start living on. And I've always told people that in every horror, there's beauty for there's a will to look for it. In 2015, she created the Ubumuntu Arts Festival that brings together performers from Rwanda and around the world. Through workshops, performances, panel discussions, and more, they explore the trauma of conflict and our shared humanity. Hope was also in New York to be recognized by the John P. McNulty Foundation. With the bustling city in the background, she told me her festival happens at the Kigali Genocide Memorial Center, where more than 250,000 victims of the genocide against the Tutsi are buried. There's a way this space becomes a pain when you're writing anything around the stories in this space. It becomes the author of what you're trying to do. And uh, you have to listen to this silence. You have to connect to this space a lot and just ask yourself these inner questions. So I thought the kind of productions I'd created here, uh, every time I took them uh, out or tried to produce them or show them to people, people came back and said, I love that work. It touched me. And I was like, what is, every work I write in this place touches people. When we were asked to do the project, I was like, why not invite other artists to come and connect with this space and become agents of change in their con- own communities? And it's working, really. So people are like, you are crazy. You cannot take a festival in a genocide memorial setting. I'm like, why not? 
this is a place where we need to take have our conversations and if art can be created for this kind of space so this is it's it, it's that, that's why I really did the festival in this place I was like since it's a a backdrop of our failed humanity it can be good for other artists so that what happened in in Rwanda may not happen in their countries because it can happen it can happen and I'm hoping that when they go in their communities they can also be very sensitive about the kind of hate or prejudices that they are being taught to young people and they, they respond through the artistic with their artistic skills so I was thinking that this is a space I need to share with my fellow artists and they can go and be agents of change in their own communities. I wouldn't find another place to do a festival other than this. Well, and you've sort of following that, you know, you've said that the beauty of art lies in its ability to deal with the unspeakable. How does the festival help people talk over difficult issues? Because already what is in this space, I mean, it's it, you have 250,000 people buried in this space. How do you talk about it? How do you talk about a woman who was mass raped, tied on a tree? I mean, how do you talk about these atrocities? Sometimes words fail us. But I've seen works that come that don't even use words and are silent works. And you have 2,000 people engaged following a 20-minute piece that is just silent and it's just a vision and it's intense and there's something going on between that person and what's and the experience is experienced. So it's about about the experience that is very curated for certain individuals and what you're going through at that time. But also I've seen this kind what also happens in the festival is that when we do workshops and we create these circles of safe spaces then slowly you see people unfolding, you see people like opening up, talking, and somebody tells you, I've never been able to talk about myself or about what I'm going through, but this is the time that this kind of piece has helped me or this kind of subject you're trying to create has helped me talk about it. So someone just comes in at 4 p.m., the festival starts like at 6, and they leave around 11 p.m. They've not said a word, but they've been there. And I think they've been just having their silent conversations with what is going on on that here. And I find that very, very powerful. And someone just comes to meditate with this space, and then you see shows in this space, and then they live quietly. One of the performances at the festival is Africa's Hope, which is about Rwanda, correct? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, what? It, what is that play about? Well, Africa's Hope is a play I actually wrote and created with this as other artists in Rwanda. It's a play that looks at genocide through the eyes of a child. And I did this play. It was my first play I wrote for the Rwandan 10th commemoration. And I worked with a, a thousand performers just in a soccer stadium to test this. But the process of working with this play was very, very painful because I went to a church where there had been a genocide massacre. And I found a woman who had survived with a young boy. At that time, the boy was 10 years old. And the woman was talking about how she had survived, uh, how she was pregnant for four days with this boy hiding in corpses. And after four days, she delivered this boy. But that means if she delivered that boy, was, that was around 7th of April, 1994. And when looking at this woman and how she keeps talking about this, then I asked myself, 
what is this boy? What kind of questions does this boy have? Because if it is the 7th of April, he will never celebrate his birthday because we are mourning the genocide. But we don't have the right answers to answer him. What is going to become of this boy? So Africa's hope really is looking at genocide through this eye, the eyes of a child, uh, questioning the old or questioning the past. What happened? Why did, why did this happen? So it is basically a collection of uh, young people's who survived during genocide. They're like 12-year-olds, 13-year-old survivors. Their testimonies, how they survived, how they saw their parents being massacred, but also talking about their hopes and dreams. If you've seen your mother be killed in front of you, what are your hopes and dreams as a young person? So this is where the play takes us. It's very emotionally charged in terms of the dark and light side, but yeah. Hmm. Wow. Here's my last question for you, Hope. You know, I think we're we're all aching for connection in increasingly divided societies. Um, you know, what's your advice on how to overcome differences and find humanity in one another? I think we need to start owning these issues as human beings and not look at them at our, like at our, they are like our neighbors' issues. So, like, your issues should be my issue. And when you talk about these issues, we, not sh- we should not talk about them like it's, it's coming from another, ca- another planet. We are, we are like aliens talking about another planet. We should talk about these issues by owning these issues. But to talk about these issues, again, calls for us as human beings to get into the skin of these issues, try to learn them, understand them, and then learn how to respond. Otherwise, <laughs> they never again that was spoken uh, was said um, when the Holocaust took place and then 50 years later it happened in Rwanda the genocide happened in Rwanda so what happened in Rwanda can happen to anywhere around the world right now because it's just a real masterminded it's just it's just people just sit down and write this script about elimination about dividing and it's const- it's happening every day so we just need to be like the guardians of the galaxy or the guardians of humanity and whenever we see this kind of alerts so or we respond in whatever capacity we have. I mean, in a, in a, as a journalist or as a doctor at work, because all these things happen in every space where human beings go, even in schools. You can tell a teacher just has different, has a very bad ideology. The ideology never hides. It's how people just treat each other, how they dehumanize each other. When you start dehumanizing somebody, I mean, it becomes your habit because your, our actions become our habit at the end of the day. So for me, I think we should own each other's issues. There's no like saying there's an uh, Arandan problem or Kenyan or American. We are shared humanity and our pain is the same. So in, under the sky of war there is no there is no winner. We are all losers hmm? at the end of the day. So I think it's important we learn from each other and we own things. Start owning things. Start owning issues. Like they are our issues. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, Hope, thank you so much. You're most welcome. In the last four years, 13,000 people from 35 countries have come to the festival in Kigali. Hope Azeda is a McNulty laureate with the John P. McNulty Foundation. At the Aspen Institute, she's a member of the Africa Leadership Initiative. Find out more about the McNulty Foundation and its laureates at aspeninstitute.org slash insight.
That's it for today's show. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Insight on your favorite podcast player so that you never miss an episode. New shows drop the last Thursday of the month, and additional bonus episodes are featured from time to time. Join the conversation and send us your thoughts on Twitter by using hashtag Aspen Insight. Aspen Insight is a production of the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Thanks to our colleagues with the Aspen Global Leadership Network and the John P. McNulty Foundation for contributing to this episode. I'm Marcy Krivenen. And I'm Zach St. Louis. Thanks for listening.